Hello and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with my co-host Jason Hammond and we have our special guest today, Paul Sarah, joining us. Hey guys, yeah, I'm pretty stoked to uh, be able to be with you guys here today and definitely grateful that you guys invited me over for one of the podcasts. Sure, so uh, yeah, Paul, just start off, uh, give us a little bio background. Um, who are you? What do you do? Um, just the basics. Yeah, so my name is Paul Sarah. I'm uh, 19 years old and I'm a professional enduro racer for IBIS cycles and DVO suspensions. And um, I graduated high school two years ago. And then since then, I've been racing pro full time. I have some jobs on the side and I help coach the Woodside Beast, which is a composite of high schoolers, you know, around the, the bay where I live. And then I gave like bike lessons and do a bunch of all the stuff on the side, but mainly just train and ride full time since 2016, which is when I went pro junior year in high school. Cool. So you have about three three seasons then? Three seasons of racing pro, and I'm going on my fourth one, yeah. And uh, this is UCI level, like uh, World Cup stuff? Yeah, so it's the Enduro World Series, which is just, um, it's sanctioned by the UCI for the first time this year. So it's a full, um, yeah, UCI World, World Cup level racing. Just I'm racing in the under 21s. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so I mean, it's the equivalent of what we're used to seeing with uh, other UCI cross-country races with the World Cup or like World Tour pro level. Um, and so it's sort of the, the biggest stage for enduro racing at this point. Yeah, it is. And it's all over the world, which is cool because, you know, you look at the World Cups for cross-country or downhill, it's mainly Europe with maybe one round in the U.S. And the Enduro World Series is all over the world. So we'll be in South America or full-on in, you know, New Zealand, Taz, um Tasmania, that's from not in English, I'm not too sure. I always get confused with French. And then all over Europe, you know, the US, Canada. So it's really all over the globe. Yeah, so I said before the podcast, I'm going to be kind of the ditzy one because <laughs> uh, I don't have as much of a background experience. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what Enduro is. Okay, so Enduro pretty much is mm, like a couple downhill races in one day. And what's really cool is that the format can change depending on the country that you're in. But the basic rules of the UWS are you only get one practice run per stages, which is what we're racing. And then so, for example, you can pedal up to stage one some races, and that's not timed. You have to make it at a certain time. You have to pedal up, so it's power, um, like you're not just getting a lift up for all of them. And then you're racing down, so the downhill's timed. And then maybe you'll get a lift to the other one. And so it's pretty much just downhill races in one day. Um, but it changes a bunch. So some stages will be a minute, some stages will be 20 minutes. Like at Whistler, we had a 20-minute uh, stage that was from the top of the world to the bottom. And it's um, so it's you need downhill skills because they're all like all the stages are kind of downhill World Cup level in terms of technical skills. But you need to be fit because you're riding for five, six, seven hours the whole day, and you have to have you know a good amount of endurance to stay focused throughout all the stages. And some stages can have one minute you know climb in the middle of it, so you need you need a bunch of power too. So, um, for example, like a pure downhill event would be, you know, they lift you to the top, it takes a minute or two to get down, and you just go full gas. Right, right like a minute to four minutes. Okay. And that's and it. So, something like what you're doing, there's a lot of, um, you have to get to the next segment using your own power. So For some of them, and then others, if there's a lift, they'll use a lift. That's what's cool. Depending yeah. on the country, depending on the venue that we're at, if there's a lift, we're going to use the lift, and we're going to pedal. There's no lift, we're just not going to use, like, we're just going to all pedal. So... Um, I mean, right away, I'm thinking fueling is important because you're out there for six or seven hours. And if you're not topped off, then probably 
you know, that 20 minute effort's not going to be quite as good as you want it to be. Also probably cognitively, you know, you need to be really focused. So, yeah. uh, you know, do is like, is a big focus of competition fueling properly? Uh, focus is huge, right? It's your mental game, I think is very important. Um, just because like you were saying, we're out there for so long and it's, even if we're doing like a bunch of stages, you're going every stage a hundred percent. Like every, nobody's holding back. So you can't just take one stage a little easier. You're going to be losing time. So you have to be focused. And then the whole food thing is also pretty hard hydration because there's no outside assistance. We only get one tech zone for the whole race where we can get our bikes checked and get some food or, or whatnot, but we're just out there by ourselves. So fueling is pretty important because um, you'll definitely start bonking super quickly. And it's also what I realized is you don't realize you are getting tired because you do like a short stage and then you just hang out, take your time up to go to the next stage and then you race again. So it's not like you don't realize how much calorie you're actually burning and how much you need to eat um, to fuel up. So it's easy to all of a sudden bonk out of nowhere. So just in, in terms of the different events, right? So some are very much lift serve and some are very much pedal based. Like what, what do you see being the difference in your day for fueling? Like in a, say an event that's primarily pedal based, what's your fueling strategy look like versus one that's maybe more lift based to get between the stages? I'll definitely change what I bring. So if it's a, if it's a big day out and there's no outside assistance and we're out there for seven hours and it's like the Mendocino California Enduro Series race a couple years ago, it's 7,000 foot of climbing. It's all pedal, um, no help. So I had a bag probably. Probably have a backpack, extra water, a bunch of food in there. And um, every time when you're done a stage, you got to force yourself to eat. Um, so usually my thing is I get to the bottom of stage, drink some hydration because it's sugar and it's salt, right? So it's mainly just sugar. So I get some quick sugar in my body and then chill for a little bit, eat a bar and head to the next stage if it's all pedal. Usually lifts, we have less time. So at North Star, the last race I was at for the Enduro World Series, it was all lift access. I think over the two days, we had a total of 1,500 feet of climbing, which is nothing. But you really didn't have a lot of time. So you get to the bottom, you had to rush to the lift, get back up. Um, so for that, I'll probably, like the morning of, I'll have a carbs, carb smoothie with some um, uh, like slow-releasing carbohydrates. So I'm sure I have a good base throughout the whole day. Um, but then maybe top it off with some, with some chews, like the scratch labs chews and then maybe a bar or two, but actually not that much food, mainly just sugar or like a Red Bull. Okay. Is that, is that a sponsor? No, that's, that's a dream sponsor right there. But... <laughs> yeah. So actually on the topic of sponsors, do you, you have sponsors already? Yeah. So my main two sponsors are Ibis Cycles and DVO Suspension. And then I also work with a bunch of other little sponsors like, um, Kushcore for the tire inserts. They protect your rim. And they add damping to your tire. Um, and then I work with WTB for as my tire sponsor. Scratch Labs for everything that's hydration and recovery. Kenny Racing is all of my clothing. Um, I work with Oakley for everything that's eyewear. Goggles and, and uh, little little glasses. Um, and then I've been working for the past couple of years with a company called Motion Instruments. And we work on uh, suspension data. So um, we have data equipment on fork and shock and we work when we get new venues we look at all the all the data we have we analyze it to change setups depending on the course and how we are so that's another company that i work with okay that's really cool yeah i know um at least a few of those companies and like oakley 
very good. Um, I'm very, very grateful to be able to work with Oakley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the past two years and they've been really, really kind. And uh, Scratch as well. Um, I use them most training rides. So um, yeah, that's very cool. And um, another area that I wanted to ask about was uh, how do you train for such a varied event? Um, honestly, like what I like about Enduro is you have to be good in everything, right? So in the off season, I'll, we spend a lot of time in the gym because um, there's a pretty important aspect of fitness that people don't talk about and it's being able to hold your body in the correct position when you go downhill. So when you say, how fit are you? People usually think, well, how quickly can you go up a hill? But there's a lot more to it than just being able to go quickly up a hill to fitness, right? So I'm in the gym a lot to get my shoulder, um, my shoulder stable, core strengthening, you know, hip mobility so I can have the correct position and be able to hold it. Because the most aggressive position when you're going downhill is forward and back. So your hips are back, obviously, and then you're also forward with your upper body. But that takes a lot of strength to be able to hold it for a long time. So just that is the base in the gym. And then a lot of, um, like, not max, max power output, but between two, uh, uh, or like between 30 seconds to two minute efforts. Okay. I'll do a lot of those. And then, you know, spend time in the pump track, um, ride a bunch of different disciplines. So I'll ride my road bike a bunch. I'll race cross country. I'll race downhill. Um, I'll go to the BMX track and do some sprints and do races there. Um, hit jumps with friends. Uh, just rock climbing, everything. So you really have to kind of touch base on everything. And then I would say your gym is the foundation of indoor racing. Okay, yeah. So a lot of like, um, you know, not aerobic threshold, but more uh, glycolytic capacity, um, lactate shuttling, stuff like that. Right, because I mean, when you're racing indoor, you're at the max. So I don't, um, I used to wear my heart rate when I race. I don't do it anymore just because it's another variable that can just like, just the strap kind of falling down a little bit. It's just other variables that can negative, not negatively impact my race, but it's something else that I think about. But when I used to wear or in practice, like the highest heart rate I've ever seen in my life was 201. And at the beginning of this season, I was at 198 for a full stage. Okay. So you are all out. So you definitely be able to focus in, in those conditions. Well, I guess, you know, in, in your race, right, does actually having that heart rate data add anything for you? I mean, you know, you know, you're going hard. Yeah. So what does the number really change for you? And it's even disappointing sometimes because heart rate fluctuates so much that I'll get to the bottom of the stage and I won't even hit 190. I'll be like 185 the whole way. And I thought I was dying. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just weird. Well, of course, there's like the lag time and heart rate as well. So yeah. um, how much can you really glean from it? I know that um, heart rate, you know, that's like your 20 minute effort metric, not your not your 90 second effort metric. Yeah. So um, I guess I can understand that. And I also appreciate um, trying to minimize distractions. Uh, it seems like a good idea. Obviously, a conscious decision that you've made for competing. Yeah, I have a bunch. Like I took my Garmin off. I had a whole bunch of things I don't race with. I can just focus on my race. Do you use Garmin, Power Meter, any of those other things, either in training or in practice, though? I definitely use it in the off-season um, when you're doing on-bike intervals or just to know, especially on the road bike, right? So when we're doing long workout, workouts, zone three for a couple hours and stuff, we use power to know, am I getting better or not in comparison to heart rate? So I definitely use it in, in the off-season. Um and then just for fun, when we're doing pre pre off season testing, we'll wear I'll wear a heart rate monitor and we'll see how quickly my heart rate drops after max effort, just to see how fit I am or if I'm fitter than last year, how I'm recovering and stuff like that. So 
I definitely use heart rate and power um, in the off season for training. But never like not you're not looking at power like oh is my peak power good in the race or like acceleration those sorts of things you're just going you're going to the race to put all your focus into the the track as opposed to worrying about the data so much yeah and I mean I'm pretty competitive with other people but also myself so the one fun thing that I like about the powering meter in a race is sometimes if there's a sprint I won't even care that I'm in a race and I'm just gonna try and beat my max power <laughs> my like three yeah. second power so I'll just be like I want to beat this. And just for personal goals. Right. So I, I found it interesting that you said, you know, focusing on um, such a large variety of workouts. And, you know, you mentioned rock climbing, um, cross country, downhill. So I think that's something that road cyclists miss a little bit is um, they want to be the best roadie. They want to be the rest, best crit rider. You want to be a very good athlete. And then you want to apply your athletic ability to a specific sport. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly how it is. And um yeah, you can learn from every discipline. Like I, I love spending time on the road bike just because I get to focus on one part of my training. And then if you do it at the right time with our army cars, you can get some serious um, skills training on the road going downhill, like working on your braking, working on, you get some pretty serious just um, sensations too, I'd say on the road bike. So I get that. And then cross country bike, it's fun because you got to be a little more precise. Like, I mean, I have a my race bike for enduro is huge. You know, there's 170 millimeters of travel in the front. Thing is 36 pounds. I can just blast through anything, especially here in the bay, or any trails that are super technical. So, get on the cross country bike, and it works on. You can do a hard effort, and then be almost blacked out, and then really have to focus as to where you're riding because you have like the bike doesn't have as much forgiveness. So, it's really important, I think, to just touch base on every discipline. So you you refer to full gas as blacked out. Yeah. So, like, is that when you start seeing spots because you're going so hard? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I've definitely almost passed out in a, in a stage one day in, in Whistler. We Do had you have a... experience with that, Todd? No, I mean, I, I think maybe once or twice in a sprint, like just absolutely on the rivet in the sprint, and giving it, you know, giving it everything, get some, seeing some spots, but okay. not quite. So, I guess I, I guess I'm not pushing hard enough. Is what it comes down <laughs> yeah. to. Well, you need to learn how to push like Paul, I guess. The only thing, so. I used to do track. I, I did like a few UCI races um, in college for track cycling, and um, I didn't really get spots. But the uh, the the turns started to feel really weird. When yeah, you're really tired. Like you just feel the gravity pulling you, and you're a little dizzy. You're just like, uh. <laughs> but you know, you, you just have to try and keep the bike in a straight line. I know exactly what you mean. And for enduro, that's actually something that's really important: is training that intensity. Um, so it's funny, like some of the kids on the Woodside Beast, the, like one of them, Cameron or Quinn, when we all ride, they will destroy me on a 20 minute effort probably. But the moment it's like hardcore focus, high inter like high intensity, we've been able to train that, you know, pushing and pushing and getting comfortable with it. And then uh, usually I get to smoke them for that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. I noticed in my own riding um, at team camp, you know, there's some cat three just like destroying me on this climb and I I don't know where it comes from and then on race day it just seems like I can go so much deeper or you know the results don't really match up with the effort they put out in um, training camp is that a, you know it's just interesting that you said you have a similar phenomenon is is um, have you noticed that some riders just seem to smash you in training but then come race day it's a bit of a different story um, I think it's it's a lot just about focusing you know, your mental focus and how prepared you are. 
And sometimes in training, um, like people, like you say, will smash me in training because I know what I'm doing. I know where I am in the off season, what I'm supposed to be doing. And if that other person wants to prove that they're better than me at that moment, then like, I won't care because I know it's not my goal. Mm-hmm. So usually, you know, if that happens in the off season, maybe they're doing something different. Maybe they just want to prove to themselves like, oh, I can do this. But I know where I am in my training or I think that's what happens sometimes if you're pretty focused on your goal. There's no reason for you to push and try and beat them if you know that the only thing that matters is actually at the race. And so once you come to the race and you know you've done all the work and you know you're prepared, then you have a a mental edge because you've done the work properly and you're ready and you've saved that intensity for when it actually counts because you can't just all out all the time. I mean, I think you see this in in every sport, the concept of a good practice player. And it's just like it's the person who goes out and practice whether it's basketball or baseball and so they look like an all-star and then game day comes around like well what whatever happened in practice didn't translate to game time so whether it's the the pressure or the mental focus or like you say they're you know focused on what they're doing in practice and they're not necessarily focusing on the goal the way they should be I think that I, I don't know how to unravel that whole thing but I definitely do think there you see this across all sports and, and all disciplines of sport where you know, people far, far exceed what you'd expect in practice. And then when game day comes or race day comes, some somewhere that performance has, has disappeared. Yeah. And I know for me, like, I can definitely get that because I've been struggling with it this year where I've had, um, last season, I broke my collarbone twice. And then this year when I was in Madeira for the first round, I cut my arm open like down to the muscle and compressed, compressed fracture to vertebrae in my back. And it's always, I've been getting hurt during races so what I've been struggling with is I get to practice and it's practice. So I'm fine and I have no problem riding a trail line absolutely 100% and stuff works out. And then I get to the race and I'm more nervous to ride that edge just because I've been getting hurt, I think, in racing. So I've been struggling that when come race day, I'm like mm, more scared to push because I ride a little tighter. Whereas in practice, you ride a little looser and it's easier to push. Yeah, we had a descending episode uh, a couple weeks ago, and we kind of talked a little bit about that, the difference between the day of, or, you know, say you're chasing somebody down at the end of a race, and you have to descend faster than them because, you know, the finish line's at the bottom of the descent, or, um, you know, this is like a proper race day as opposed to a training event, and how do you sort of step up just that little bit more, or how do you make sure you're going 100%? And, you know, in such a, you know, hot moment and, you know, you're probably tired because you just did a 20 minute climb or something. Uh, do you have any insight into that? Uh, like, how do we, how do we do well on race day? I think honestly, it just comes back to being confident. You've had a good off season and you've done all the work you're supposed to. So if you've ticked off everything you wanted to do in your off season, you wanted to work on this, you wanted to work on that and you've achieved it. Come race day, there's there's no reason for you not to be ready. So if you've done everything and you've had a smooth off season and you're ready and you're happy to be there and you're stoked and you've done the work, then your confidence and your mental strength will just be there because you know you're ready. So whatever happens in terms of results is what you could have done. It's just the best you can do because you're ready for it. So I think that's the way to look at it. It's actually super interesting that you say that because I, I remember reading a study I, probably a couple of years ago now, and the, the punchline is basically they looked at the athletes' goals and then they looked at how much tra- how much of their planned train they completed. 
And it's more or less, so long as the athlete completed, I want to say 85% or more of their goals, they were much, much more, or 85% more of their training, they were much, much more likely to actually achieve their competition goal than those who had done less than whatever that threshold was. Yeah. And it's like, that, that's like totally aligns with what you're saying is, well, yeah, I put in the work, I did what I was supposed to do, and now race day comes and yeah, the, the result is there. I, I met my goal. And I think that speaks to how well we understand training at this point in time mm-hmm. with our power meters and periodization and all the other science that, yeah, we, we know pretty well. And with a good coach, we can, you know, get you on the right path to achieve the goal. It's really a matter of staying healthy and doing the work. Yeah. And then, um, I've been working a bunch last year with Todd Schumlich, Performax Racing, who, um, he also trains Richie Rude, Aaron Gwynn. He's worked with Sam Blankensop. He's the, he worked with a bunch of top level athletes. And that's what he was talking about. He was saying, you know, if you can't, you have, you have to be super cocky to say, I want this result at a race and that be your goal. You can't be putting, you know, result goals out. You, if you put training and, you know, mental strength and focus and stability in your hips or whatever it is as your goals, then if you've done everything come, come race day, you've done all your goals and whatever result you get, it's just a cherry on the top, but it shouldn't be your goal. So he's definitely helped me out a bunch with that and being able to focus on other aspects of training. Yeah, so tell us a little, a little bit more about your coaching situation. Do you get you know daily workouts on training peaks, um, like most of us amateurs? Do you have you know frequent conversations with your coach? Like, is the dy- dynamic any different than um, just say you know you just hired someone for a few hundred dollars a month? Um, no, so Todd and I have a pretty good relationship. We're we're close, and um, I reached out to him last year, and we talked about what I wanted and where I wanted to go, and he. I was pretty, I'm pretty grateful he accepted to train me. So it wasn't like he just takes everybody. So I'm still pretty grateful about that. And then the way it works is I went up to his house in November and I spent, you know, a couple days there, you know, three to four days. And we, he tests everything. He really gets to know you as a person because we're doing gym tests, we're doing mobility tests, we're doing um, cardio, and then we're just riding and I'm just living with him for a couple days. So he gets to see mentally where I am how do I react to stuff so he really tests everything he looks at you and then we sit down and we do a bunch of um, he asks a bunch of questions so he knows what I'm, what my goals are for the year uh, what I need to work on and so with what I need what I want to work on what the results are saying from the tests he creates a training program and I have a big binder I could have brought here and, and showed some stuff but um, it's um it's all in like cycles and weeks. So I'll get like two to three weeks of sheets because I write everything down, number of reps, each side, weights, everything is, everything is written down. And then so after one cycle, so one week approximately, um, I'll send him stuff and he'll, he'll check it over and say, okay, well then here's your thing for the next two weeks, here's the thing for the next three weeks. Um, but we're, we're talking all the time, yeah. And, um, but we're not talking that much because I remember one of my first gym sessions, um, I was struggling to understand the workouts and I couldn't figure it out. And so I kept sending him texts and I was like, I can't get this. I can't get that. And then I could tell he was getting annoyed and he just said, put your phone down and figure it out. And he's right because when come race day, I'm by myself on the trails. And so I was pretty stoked because I, I ended up figuring it out because I focused. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you have a good relationship with your coach. Oh, it's, it's cool, yeah. And he's he knows a bunch of stuff, so I definitely trust his insights. And it's cool to have discussions and 
learn more about why we're why I'm doing this or why he's having me do that. Mm-hmm. And he just has experience from working with top level athletes for twenty years. Yeah. Uh, so he's seen a lot of riders make it and a lot of riders not make it too. So it's cool. Um so in terms of your coach, um I'm just wondering, um does he have any of his own experience uh racing or um did he sort of just start coaching and got really good at it, picked up better athletes? No, he's a badass rider to start with. Okay. You know, he's a really good motocross racer and not racer racer, yeah, he no, he was a really good motocross racer and then he's a really good mountain biker, still rides motocross, uh, motos, just every type of moto. And um He's been through his fair share of injuries as well, surgeries, and how to recover from it. So he gets it, yeah. And he's been at the races for 20, 20 something years, 25 years. So um, I think when we were talking about it, he was always very interested in the whole training aspect of it. So he went to school um, for it. And it's not like some athletes will be, you know, they'll race and then they'll become a coach and they'll just coach whatever their coach told them. Whereas he actually went to school and, and he made his own training program based on what he learned on how the body works and, and all that stuff yeah. and then working with athletes. Yeah. So he has experience. So that. let's talk about injuries because earlier you sort of just offhandedly mentioned that you, uh, <laughs> whatever, uh, sliced into your arm muscle and uh, broke a couple bones. How often do you get injured? Uh, how often does it normally take to get better? Is it normalized for you? Apparently, it is. Um, oh, it's honestly, what's going on? <laughs> it's honestly been just a rough two years. Um, so I've um, I started racing freshman year, um, and then I raced the California Enduro Series as a junior for two years, and I won the series two years in a row, and then moved pro um, when I was sixteen. I I didn't really have any injuries for two years. I mean, I was already racing at the expert level, and you know in the state and then I was doing uh, I did a couple international races and I didn't get injured for two years and then when I was when I turned pro my junior year with um, the Yeti Fox factory team I got injured maybe once I just bruised some muscles in my shoulder but I had some you know okay season and then just past two years just you know injuries I broke my carbone at the beginning of the year and then got back on the bike too soon that was also a lack of experience you know now looking back I probably won't get back to a race for five weeks after um, just because you're not stable and you're not ready, you don't have enough time on the bike. So that's something which is lack of experience. So I broke my carbone again, so I called the season off. And then this year, um, like I was like first race, first international race, getting back. I was like stoked. And then I was building that edge again because it takes race a lot of races to be able to ride on that edge and be comfortable on it. And then I was finding it. And then, you know, not racing for a full year, a little bit of I'm missing some, some race time. I'm missing where my edge is and so I crashed on the seventh stage or sixth stage just because I wasn't too sure where my edge was anymore so I think um when I look back at a lot of riders that are top pro now and are doing really well they've had a couple years of just back-to-back injuries and I think it comes from just a lack of experience that I'm, I'm having just not used to how do I get back where am I at in terms of my edges how do I change my goals now that I got injured um so yeah, I think that's just a string of bad luck and inexperience where I'm learning a bunch from, from those injuries. Mm-hmm. So what do you do uh, when you're injured uh, in terms of training, in terms of like, do you make sure you go to bed early so you can try and get your bones to recover quicker or um, is there a set protocol? Um, I mean, I definitely like, 
I go to bed early, not early, but I try to have a consistent schedule, whatever I'm doing, right? Because um, I can't just switch it on for training week or race week and then go back to partying all the time or, or whatnot. I'm just trying to keep it consistent. And then and depending on the injuries, like when I broke my collarbone, I watched a lot of TV for about two weeks. Um, and now here I broke my hands and I've just been working at a, at a cafe just keeping myself busy, doing other stuff, doing a lot of running, um, just trying to focus on other stuff and not go crazy. Yeah, so tell us about your current injuries, because you do have, uh, both hands have, have something on them. I know, it was kind of a bummer, you know, just a bummer to end the 2019 season like that. I was in North Star for the Enduro World Series, it was the seventh round, and it was my last international race. So after that, my season was going to be done, and I was going to go up to Radalac for some fun riding and then I was going to race some um, chuck nut in Bellingham and Ashland for some just hanging out and doing you know you have the fitness right so we just do some fun races and stage five before the last stage like halfway down the trail I just probably hit a rock that I didn't hit during practice and went over the bars and straight my hands to some rocks and um, I broke two carpals in my left hand and I broke my trapezium in my right hand and chipped my radial head and my elbow so they're not bad, like I'm not in any pain. Well, I'm in some pain, but like I can move my hands and stuff. It's just, you have to be pretty careful with hand injuries or wrist injuries and not put any weight because then you can become unstable. But I didn't need any surgery or anything. So it's just, you know, letting it heal and take my time. Yeah. And so you're you're just trying to fill the time until they're ready and you can start your off season or? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much just what I'm doing. Trying to focus on other stuff. Well, it sounds like, Try to keep some fitness, right, by running and maybe doing some other some other exercise, but not uh, no bike time right now, just with the, the inability to bear weight in the wrists. Yeah, exactly. So just hanging out and, and doing that. <laughs> just also spending time in the gym, like little challenges and having fun. Uh, my legs are taking a beating, right, because I can only work out my legs. So. <laughs> can we talk bike setup a little bit? Just yeah. Since I think uh, an enduro bike is a very different animal than a, a road bike or even a standard mountain bike. Uh, so it's, I mean, you already said that your bike's 36 pounds on race day. So like, let's talk about that. Like your, what size bike do you ride just for baseline? So we have a, an understanding there and how do you get to 36 pounds? Yeah. So I'm five, six, barely five, six. So I'm, I'm pretty short. And then I ride a medium size, um, for Ibis ibis because every bike frame every bike manufacturer it all sizes a little different so i'm on a medium and i ride a hd4 and then so the weight goes up right because i've got bigger discs so 200 millimeters front and rear to get more i like it just because it's a light rider it's a lot more touchy and Di so your your disc brake disc brakes rotors rotors are 220 millimeters 203 203 yeah 203 okay yeah so they're um, you gotta slow so it down a little bit for me paul <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so eight inch rotor versus your six one sixty or one forty on your road bike. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And so, so the the lever distance is longer from the brake pads to the um, hub. Is cor that, correct. That's yeah. like the, the uh, that's why you get more stopping force. Correct. Oh my god. Yeah. I didn't know that, but that's cool. It makes sense, okay. right? It's yep. just yeah. Yeah. You're, you're pulling from a further away, so you have way more, more leverage. leverage on it. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that makes sense. That's cool. And then I have Saint brakes, so that's a little bit heavier too. Um, but I like, I like the bigger rotors just because I'm pretty light. I'm 145 pounds or something. And so it, it gives me a lot more control as to, I don't have to waste energy braking a little harder as my bike will slow down just as much 
um, as uh, someone else who's a little heavier and has to run the same motors. Um, so I have that and then 170 millimeter fork in the front. Um, I have a coil shock in the back, so that adds about a pound versus an air shock. And then in terms of tires, I'm running Kushcore inserts. So that adds some weight too. They're like, imagine, um, it's not foam, but it's like it protects your rim. And it takes up about half of the space in the tire. And so it creates damping. So it's, um, we've done a bunch of testing, but with the motion instrument stuff, the data analysis, and it's about 25% smoother. So you get more small bone compliance and your bike is a little smoother and it protects your rim. And when you flat, you can just ride on the rim. And uh, so you can finish a stage, not lose that much time because you're just riding on the rim, but you're not destroying it because you have a cush core in there. And then my tires are full downhill casing. So they're, I think, 1.3 kilos. The tires just themselves. Mm. Just the tire, like, yeah, a little over a kilo. Yeah, so, okay, tell me about the foam core a little bit more. So, like, what's the brand? Kush core. Okay. Yeah. And uh, basically, it's just a liner where, so you're running tubeless. Yes. Is that correct? And then um, it's just a liner you'd put in the, like, in the well of the rim. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of puffy, and basically, you don't shred your rim if you flat, and you want to keep riding on it. Is that right? Like, that's the purpose. Yeah, but it also lets you run a little bit lower tire pressure because you can, right, compress the tire more and not worry about destroying your rim. And they're like, uh, they're convex, okay. right? And yeah. It has there's a little bit of a convex shape to it. It sits into the, the cavity of the rim and then it has a convex protrusion that comes out. And like it also uh, gives the sidewall a little bit of support too, right? So that's what I, that's what <laughs> I like about it too. It gives a lot of support in, in, in corners. And then what's interesting is some... Um, one of the, another rider, Cody Kelly, uh, doesn't like that support, you know, in corners. So it's really rider preference. Also, like when you hit a corner, he wants to feel a little bit of a, a flex in the tire. I do not like that flex. So I like the Kush core. And then for the lower pressures, um, it allows you to run lower pressure, which is cool. Like if I'm just riding around and stuff, but when we're racing, I actually end up running the same pressures as I would if I didn't have a Kush core just to protect my tire, protect my rim. Cause I'm running carbon rims. If I were was if I were running aluminum wheels, I probably would be running a little lower pressure. Because something else is enduro, you cannot change wheels. So if you break a wheel and you change it, it's a five minute penalty, okay. which is pretty much your race is over. Well, right. I mean, like a typical enduro race is with in like what thirty ish minutes or so yeah, of like, stage time, like of your you know your cumulative time. Probably thirty to an hour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it, we're talking yeah. the top ten is within a minute. Yeah. And then everything else. So you put you add two minutes and you're what eightieth, ninetieth. You're done. Okay. Yeah. And what's the field size? Um, it changes. So in um, you know, again, it changes in the venue. But I think on average for the men category, which is pro men, like the open or in the world cross country World Cups, I would usually have you just have the men or the women. Um, I think in the men category, there's usually about a hundred plus racers, and then the women category, I think it's about half, like fifty, fifty to sixty. And then in the under 21s, we are usually, um, I'd say like 30 or something, 35. Okay. Yeah. But and you have to qualify to get to those races. Okay. So um, you said tires, you have really heavy tires. Mm -hmm. um, you said 1.3 kilos each. And that's what, why, why are they so heavy? So um, Enduro is pretty technical. Like it's, it's gnarly tracks where we're racing proper downhill tracks. And so 
you know, you have no outside assistance when you're racing. Um, you can't change your wheels. So you have to make sure your bike can make it through the day, make it through two days. Um, and honestly, like they're big tires, you need a lot of traction. So we have big knobs and then it gives you support. Um, and honestly, like if I just got on a light casing, um, I would flat first corner probably just okay. because we're riding, I mean, aggressive and like you're riding down technical trails and you're going hundred percent. So the bike definitely takes a beating. Go ahead. So for reference, right, I mean, your tires are 2.2, 2.3, 2.4, 2.5, sometimes wider than 2.5 on certain courses. So right now my current setup is I'm on a 735 IBIS rim and I'm running 2.5 uh, tires in the front. Inches. Inches. Okay. Yeah. 2.5 in the front and 2.4 in the rear. And usually we'll change the rear depending on the course a little bit to get a little bit more... Um, rolling uh, less rolling resistance or whatnot um we usually don't touch the front um joe from bike co actually did some testing uh, a while back and the front doesn't really affect that much your rolling resistance did you have any other um, parts of the bike that you didn't mention or um, um and then we have obviously there's a dropper post uh, okay. so if there's um in the middle of a stage there's like a a long climb i'm talking like a minute because most of the stuff you'll do out of the saddle but for example in whistler we had stage three it was gnarly in terms of fitness because it was technical and then you have a punchy uphill technical another punchy uphill and all of a sudden we literally had 45 second sprint on a fire road and that's when i saw the stars i thought i was going to pass out because you're going full out and so for something like that um, most riders will put their their saddle up so it allows you to be able to put it up and down in the middle of a stage okay so there's that and then um yeah one by 11 drivetrain um that one too is a little bit reinforced so it won't break you know if uh, they're not like your cross-country light um derailers or anything they're the, the bigger ones so they'll take a big beating and they won't snatch or anything so everything is reinforced on the bike like i the frame and stuff everything gets smashed all the time not breaking but like we're hitting rocks it's so it has to be able to survive it's interesting that you said you have a carbon uh, carbon rims, but um, you know you're putting 1.3 kilo tires on them. Um, what like is there a reason? I always thought carbon rims were for well, you know, there's I guess increased stiffness is good, but um, it was it's mostly because the rolling weight is reduced. Um, but then you put on you know big tires. So what what's the what's the incentive here for you to use carbon? Um, I'm a little on the fence, honestly, uh, after the, the year or some, after this whole season, um, especially for enduro, just because we can't change the rims. So it makes a little more sense to have an aluminum wheel that you can hammer back. Um, carbon rims, I mean, they're, they're cool. They're stiff. Um, but I think now that I'm, I'm looking back, at least for racing, they're not the, the correct choice, right? Because we're putting, like you're saying, heavy tires on. We're putting Chris Coron. So I definitely don't have the rims because I want it to be lighter. The only reason I would run a carbon rim is because I would get the added stiffness. But I don't even know my bike weighs. I think it's around 36. But I, I don't honestly don't care how, how heavy it is as long as it gets me through and it's the correct setup that I want. And you said hammer back as in like if you crash and you, you have like a little mallet that you take with you and... No. Is that what you mean? Like you dent the rim and then you're going to... Well, like for example, um, in Whistler, Antoine Vidal, who is the series leader for U21, I think has won the championship for this year. 
he um, cracked his uh, aluminum rim on stage five. And what we did is I just took the, we just took the rim, found a rock and hit it as hard as we could. And we put it back. Until, okay. A little bit so that the tire would seal and that he could finish it. And I'm talking like his rim was so bent, it wouldn't even clear the frame, the, the fork anymore. Yeah. Or so at races, another one of my friend, uh, she bent her rim pretty bad. And so Joe from Bikeco literally took his hammer, took the tire off and was going 100% onto it and just slamming the rim on the ground, which is something you can't do on a carbon rim. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like yours would just explode yeah. in any of those situations. Right. But so, and you're telling me that um, fixing the rim just so it can clear the fork is going to be faster than just taking the five minute. Like either way, your race is over, right? Not really. You okay. sh- you sh- it's It was pretty crazy. Antoine, like his rim was wobbling and I think he got like six on the stage. Okay. So making it down is always quicker than getting a penalty if you can. This is something I learned in my first enduro race. Uh, being a cross-country rider, I'm so used to fixing a flat. It's like, oh, no, you don't have time for that. You, no, you, yeah. You need to keep riding your bike. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you just ride it slow so you don't wreck your rim. Uh, this was before Coach Core was very popular. Uh, you know, it's way better than stopping to fix it. Like, if you stop, you're done. There's no point. And, you know, I've also <laughs> made that mistake. My uh, second season in 2016... Uh, we were racing nationals. It was my first nationals ever in the under 18s. And I was doing really well. And at the long stage, I flatted at the top. And I stopped And because I, I used to race cross-country. So I tried to fix it and I got back on. And the time that I lost, I probably would have been national champion if I hadn't stopped in that stage, you know, or maybe top three. So, you know, it, it's stuff you learn. Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting because... Um, I, I, one of my friend's favorite stories is from Batten Kill. He, uh, he got a flat and he, he, he fixed it in a minute 40 because he has the Garmin file to prove it. And then he never saw the front of the race ever again. And it's like, yeah, a minute 40 is kind of a lot in a road race. But to think even if you have it nailed down, maybe a minute, if you're like a pro and you have the, you know, the injection thing. Um, but, you know, you're just saying, screw it. Just, just ride it out. It's I mean, going to be faster than a minute realistically you're gonna lose what 30 seconds i mean um to give you to get give you some perspective my first season in pro um a couple years ago i was on the yeti team and richie flatted who's um a couple time world champion and world champion flatted at the top of a 12 minute stage i'm i'm saying like three minutes in and still beat my time okay and with a bunch of pedaling and he beat beat, i think he beat me by like five seconds or ten seconds Hmm. Well, and there's probably so much rubber material that you're rolling. You're yeah, you get you keep a lot of speed. It's different than a flat on a road bike, I assume. Oh, absolutely. And it, you know, with those stiff casings, that actually gives you some support. It's not like a, a road tire. If you flat a road tire, there's nothing there, right? It's a little layer of rubber between you and the road. Yeah, with some of these big non-bike tires and the really stiff casings, it actually gives you decent support. I mean, it's not the same as a properly inflated tire. You can't rail a corner the same way, but you can get from point A to point B. And it's downhill, right? So you're, it's sometimes it's steep enough where if it's really steep, you actually don't lose that much time because you're on your brakes anyway. Okay. Um, so always ride it out. Even if you're missing a brake or whatever, you always got to keep going. I'm trying to think. There's one of the guys in the is there Worlds or one of the World Cups a couple of years ago at uh, the UCI downhill. And like he got a flat, like super. It's cool, wasn't it? It was, it was Aaron. Yeah. yeah. Right. He got a flat and still won the race. 
I think it was with the chain. He broke yeah, his oh, that's chain. Right, with the chain. That's right. He broke his chain and won the race. And okay. with the flat one, that was also a good run because yeah. he flatted and the tire got off the rim and he just sent it down on the rim. Oh, I was... saw the one on the rim. I yeah, saw that. But he was right. still like he was quite respectable. Oh like, yeah, he was mid pack or something. Maybe even better. Yeah. <laughs> it's gnarly. Hmm. So Yeah, well, it's not the same as cross country or road for sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's uh, kind of a unique event uh, in the cycling world. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if you're going downhill for four minutes, you don't really care, right? Like, if... yeah. So that, that's the other thing is like it's you're you're just doing you're stringing together five to seven time trials in a day, right? That's and then exactly you just it. Add up the time. That, so yeah. you know, here I am talking about you know you should you should race track because it'll teach you about road race tactics and you know like. That's I, I come from mass start races. I hate time trialing. But, it, you know, you give me five other people and I'll convince them to let me win, you know, with tactics. And right. So it's it's really interesting how different it is to be like, well, no, like I just want to get to the line as fast as possible, um, which is certainly, you know, different than, than my background. Yeah. And the cool thing that I like the most about Enduro is um, we get to see the trails just once. So another thing you know about the tires and getting the bike to survive is... We're going 100% down trails we've seen once. So we make mistakes, right? Um, and mistakes were like, you'll you try to gap something on you know rock garden and you forgot that where you were landing, there's this big sharp rock. So you're gonna smash your rim and um, just stuff you don't remember, right? Because there's so much trail to cover. You can't remember by heart 30 minutes to an hour. Um, do you ever use like a GoPro or something to record? Uh, oh yeah the training the training run just but even then right it's impossible to remember uh the whole trail you can only remember important segments of it during the, your race run yeah so that's another reason why i like riding um just under race pace during practice is stuff comes up to you and if you ride it out fine then that's just your line because that's where you naturally went so that's what you're gonna ride mm-hmm. and in stuff where you almost stop or you make a mistake and it you lost a lot of time, that's when you go back and check a line or if it's really rough. Sometimes you don't want to get the straightest line or the smooth or the, the quickest line. You want to get the smoothest one because um, you got to take into account, like, are you tired? Where are you coming from? And all that stuff. But we definitely use a lot of GoPro. And at the end of the day, like, you're looking at your GoPro and you're analyzing and you're remembering key sections. Like, okay, there's this one tree on the left into this, which means there's two corners coming up and this, like, break check for that. Yeah. And how often do you go and uh, like find a random new piece of trail just to practice? Like, do you call it something in particular when you do a trail for the first time full gas or second time full gas? <laughs> it's just like sending it blind. Okay. Um, do you go and find new trails to send them blind just to practice the the feeling of it? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll look around for sure. And it's a little hard here in the Bay because all the trails are you know realistically very easy compared to the stuff we race. So um, I usually look for very tight and awkward awkward trails because those are the closest thing that I can get to being very precise, having to be very precise. And so it's why I like, you know, going up and when I go to see Todd up in in Squamish, worldwide trails that I haven't ridden. So um, just on the fly, kind of adapting. And then honestly, it all goes back to the gym and having your technique down because if you know you're strong and you know your fitness is there and you're able to take a, you know big impacts and you know your bike setup is correct for that terrain or just any terrain like your base setup is good 
and your technique is there, then you'll be able to take anything. Like I, when I'm riding, I know that whatever comes up on the trail, I can just ride blind and be fine. But it might, I might not ride the, the, the quickest line, but I know that whatever happens, whatever section it is, I can, I can just ride it and, and be okay. Um, so that took a couple years. But now I'm in a place where like I'll get to a trail and I know I can ride everything that's on the trail, um, just because you know just racing at that level. Yeah, that's I, I think that's really cool that um, enduro is very, um, just like you know you're like like we said you're a good athlete. Whereas you know you look at the top Tour de France riders and they're like very specialized. Yeah. Uh, you know like well I need to my watts per kilo needs to be this and like that's basically it. But um, you know, you're like, well, if I'm a good athlete, it'll be fine. And you don't see, uh, you don't see any of the Tour de France riders saying like, well, you know, I'm a good athlete. So, uh, you know, I- I'm sure I'll win. So, and, um, it's cool because a bunch of the Enduro World Series racers, if you ask maybe the top 30, what they're doing in the off season, they're all doing something different. Some are doing full CrossFits, you know, full, like full on CrossFit workouts. Other have never been to a CrossFit workout. Some do a lot of running. Some will do a bunch of rock climbing. Some are doing all cross-country races. Some do road, you know, stage races. Um, others are doing marathon cross-country races. Like um, Mitch Rapolato was racing in North Star, and he did pretty well. I forget if he got uh, second. He, he was on the podium, I think, in third place. And the next weekend, he was out racing a marathon cross-country race. Mm. So, and everybody's really good at something. Some of them are way better at BMX. Others are way fitter. And so there's so much difference and diversity in enduro that it really takes the best rider in all disciplines the most well-rounded athlete wins honestly. and then you know what the winner is separated by a couple seconds from each other is that right um it depends you know sometimes racers will come out and just absolutely destroy everyone other times um i think the race in les france was won by and north star was won by 0.5 yeah, yeah, North Star was less than a second for sure. And I think Lizov was 1.2 or something, but overall, um, it was insanely tight. And I'm talking after an hour of racing. The race was won by 0.5 seconds, yeah. something like that. Um, and then other times, I think three years ago in the Tweel, the rider who won, won by a minute. So it's, it's um, you never know. But I would say on average, top three riders are on their league of their own that weekend for some reason. Top 10 are insanely quick and also in a league of their own. And then you have to get in the top 20. They're in a different pace. And then there's everyone. But I would say it's 20's quick, top 10's quick, and 3 is just untouchable that weekend. Mm-hmm. Usually how it goes. So it's just those those top 3 riders, it, it all it all fit together for them on that day or on that weekend. Or on that, um, yeah, year. It's, it's been pretty consistent um, where some, some like top 5 riders are having their season. Like um, and they're the ones doing well. I think that's probably true of any sport to a certain extent, right? There's yeah. Always, there's always those few, you know, whatever, wherever you want to make that cut at the top echelon. Like, yep. I mean, I think tennis is a great example. For the last several years, you've had Federer and Nadal and, and Djokovic, and they've been at the top of the top of the game. And, and that's it. Yeah. That's really <laughs> that's really it. And it's everybody else was just trying to get into that club. Um, and so yeah, I think that's interesting. And it, it rotates a little bit, right? Like some sometimes it's a different three. I think there's a little bit more variability in enduro, right? Than, oh yeah, um, some weekends, even if it's the the rider who's winning the championship, if he has a flat or or she has a crash, and 
DNFs that that race for something, then obviously the all, all of a sudden the overalls are super or they're just changing. Um, so there's a lot more variables than yeah tennis or stuff. yeah. And also seems like a bit of a newer sport than. Um, you know, some of these older sports seem to be really kind of fleshed out in how do you do this? What's the best off season? What's the best, um, you know, training plan? How do we get you to be like a very good competitor? And it seems like uh, with enduro, nobody really knows or everybody has their own philosophy on it. And no, no single philosophy has has risen. Is that right? Is that like a correct conclusion? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because it's it's changing every year. Um like I didn't do a lot of the races last year because I was injured. But one of the what the riders were telling me is it was insane in terms of endurance. Like over the course of four days, I think they were doing twenty five thousand feet of climbing, twenty thousand feet of climbing, all pedal. And then this year, after because it was becoming unsafe, right? You do two days of practice, and you're absolutely dead. And you do it again for two days of racing on trails you've never seen before that are really technical. It was getting a little too dangerous in terms of just the fatigue. And so this year, it's the polar opposite. Most of the races haven't had that much pedaling, and they've been a lot of lift access, but they've been more technical and more explosive. And then it changes just country to country. So you get to a venue in France, and it's completely different than the venue in the U.S. And then some courses aren't technical, and they're all physical. So it's just, there's no way you can prepare like you can prepare for a tennis match. There's no controls. Well, it's kind of interesting that it's, it is similar to something like the World Championships for road, where they're like, well, this year there's going to be a lot of mountains. And, yeah. Uh, and and so then they can speculate about, you know, who the real competitor is out of the field. And I, I assume it's similar with Enduro, where it's like, well, this year looks really technical. So these, you know, these four riders are, you know, they come from a more technical background. So they're going to be better. You know, th- these are more fitnessy riders. So they'll do better this year. Um I, I assume in the long term, though, you want to be able to have a season where you have a variety of events. And so you can uh, have some events that cater to the, the stronger riders, some events that cater to the you know more technical riders. And, well, that's what's you know, cool. That's what's cool about Enduro is that like all the venues are different throughout the year. So the one the, the person that wins the championship is the is overall the best rider on the world that that year in terms of mountain biking. Because they've had everything checked off. Hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, because I'm thinking back, the first couple rounds in uh, New Zealand and Tasmania were physical. Like, there was a lot of pedaling. Um, but you still have to be super fit. Like, some of those stages are very, very hard. I think it's a lot less, um, like, road where, like you were saying for World Champs, if it's hilly, you know who's going to win. There's, like, a little group of people that can win. You get to an enduro race, I think everybody in the top ten can realistically win. So... Yeah, it's definitely more of every weekend, it's yours to grab. I think that's why you see so much variety in the training, right? Is that there's so such a wide range of courses and such a wide range of skill requirement mm-hmm. that it's hard to optimize, hard to know what the optimal strategy is. Whereas like Jason alluded to Tour de France, like, yeah, your watts per kilo needs to be about X. And now, you're, now you have a chance, right? With Enduro, it's like, well, your watts per kilo needs to be something it's like no one cares what right your like it needs to be are. something yeah. like you gotta be able to pedal hard and you need to have sufficient technical skill and right and you need to have a good bike setup that can make it through the demanding courses and you need a little bit of luck and there's just so many 
pieces that come together to make a, a championship season. So your your offseason training, I think, just by nature is going to be highly variable amongst people who are working on their different weaknesses. Yeah, and what Todd has made very clear to me in the beginning of the last year is the best riders, I'm talking about the ones that are dominating, are not the best at anything. In all the tests, they are not the best at anything. They get beat in every single requirement on the test, but they are the most consistent. They score three out of three on everything, but they're not the best at everything, which is, they're not the best at one specific thing, you know? So if you're consistent and you're overall good, then you'll do well. Yeah. It was interesting. That's that's actually super interesting compared to other parts of cycling, right? Yes, the mental part factors in. Yes, your race tactics factor in. But if you look at a time trial, like it's all twenty minute power. Who's who's got who's who's got the highest watts per kilo, right? And, and an arrow position, like those two things, right? And you're done. You can pretty much predict it. Whereas I think other things are, yeah, more more determined. Yeah, and I would even say like you know NorCal regional road racing is you know there's a certain type of rider because there's only a certain type of uh, terrain. You know, there's some, ro- you know, there's a big flat section in every road race. And then there's a rolling section where you try and drop people. And then you go back to the flat section. And, you know, the question is, do you do the, do you do two laps? Or you do four. And, you know, like you get big, strong riders and like, that's the type. That's how you succeed in NorCal road racing. And, um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, a series where you do get to go all around the world, um, it's sort of like. I'm sure there are riders who are like, well, I only do well in the Southern Hemisphere because, you know, just like the geography is useful to me or, yeah. or whatever versus, um, some, you know, something like NorCal road racing, which is, um, you know, very like you're very typecasted. I would say the one thing that impacts the most in enduro racing is weather. Um, when it rains, like my, I don't have the best wet skills just from living in California. And so the moment it starts raining, uh, you, all of a sudden the overall changes. Who's the best in wet conditions? And you always, you all of a sudden you see, um, and that stuff changes automatically if it's wet or not. Huh. That's the I think that's the biggest factor because some of those tracks are scary to ride in the dry, and when it starts raining, it's it's pretty terrifying. So um, if you don't if you're not confident in your wet um, skills, then yeah, I think you're gonna have a hard time. <laughs> And I don't think that like, I don't think that carries over the same way to road racing. Like a, a wet road is a wet road. Some people may be more or less confident, but I don't think it's like flips things on its head. Right? It's like, am I confident in the wet? Yeah, not as confident in the dry, but I don't know. Well, so my my experiences in wet weather is um, on the East Coast and during the collegiate season. I've done, you know, I do really well at forty degrees and raining. Um, I noticed that from collegiate, all my best results are, um, in just bad weather. And that's because some people either they didn't prepare properly, their mindset wasn't in the right place, something like that. They just let the weather get to them. Right. And, and you know, I'm sure it's probably the same at the high level and you know, you're like, Oh, like this is going to be super dangerous cause it's wet. You've already lost. Yeah. If, if you're not ready mindset. mentally for the race, you definitely, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think road racers, you know, road racers are also like little weenies. So um, <laughs> I, I think the weather can really affect a lot of people who, um, you know, aren't, you know, like, you know, if you look at the forecast three days in advance, it's going to be wet. You have three days to cry about it and then come race day. It's okay. You know, like go get your, go get your bad weather gear and, and get on with it. Well, it's, it's wet for everybody, right? That's always been mm-hmm. my feeling towards it's like, well, you got to ride in the wet too. Uh, of course, this doesn't happen at 
in enduro, yes, because the day is long and there's many stages. But sometimes in the World Cup downhill races, it doesn't happen that way. And even for enduro, where we'll get a stage, it'll be wet. And then if, for example, when you start, if, if for example, I'm the first one to drop and it's pouring rain when I'm racing. And by the time the last rider drops in, it's not pouring rain and it has stopped raining. He's going to have a lot. He's going to have a way harder time riding that trail than I do. Just because it's it's counterintuitive, but it's less slippery when it's wet and it's raining. Whereas if it, the moment it starts drying just a little bit and you're dealing with a little bit of thicker mud, then it's impossible to ride. Hmm. So the conditions actually will change it up a bunch. Um, yeah. So um, we're going to wrap up soon, but one last question. Uh, Paul, what do you like to do for fun? Don't mention anything that has to do with bicycles. Oh, for sure, cooking. Um, the moment I'm done with racing and stuff, I'm definitely going to go work in, in a restaurant, like fine dining and, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So a big dream and, and goal, goal of mine is to work in, uh, just like a, a Michelin star restaurant. So the French laundry or French or cook under Anne-Sophie Peak in France. Um, so definitely cooking is, is this and music I do a lot of, um, open mics and I do the, I did all the musicals when I was in high school. Um, so music and cooking is definitely my thing. Okay. Uh, both not money makers alongside with cycling. But, uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'll be happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us. This is uh, really insightful and, um, yeah, your contributions were, you know, really interesting. And so, so heal up soon. And, and for the rest of our listeners, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and over to iTunes and give us a review or wherever you listen to your podcast and share with friends if you'd like. Um, and until next time, as we always say, keep the rubber side down. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks guys.